Welcome to this podcast on how boards of the future can effectively harness the power of diversity. I'm Tom Gosling, a member of the advisory panel at the Financial Reporting Council and an executive fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance here at London Business School. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Randall Peterson, Professor of Organisational Behaviour and Academic Director of the Leadership Institute at London Business School, and Viola Rollins, Executive Director of the Leadership Institute and an expert in board dynamics and organisational behaviour from both a practitioner and academic perspective. So Randall, Viola, welcome to you both. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation to join you today, Tom. We're here to talk about some of the findings from the report Board Diversity and Effectiveness in FTSE 350 Companies, which was commissioned by the Financial Reporting Council, with the research carried out jointly by the Leadership Institute at LBS and SQW, the Economic and Social Development Research Consultancy. This is the second of two podcasts. In the first, called Diversity on Boards, A New Approach, my colleague at the Financial Reporting Council, David Stiles, talked with Dr. Sergei Plakanyov of SQW and with Professor Peterson about what the research had to say about the impact of board diversity on board effectiveness. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the two forward-looking parts of the research. Firstly, what attributes, skills and experience do today's board members expect to be needed in the diverse boardrooms of the future? And secondly, how can nomination committees be helped to take a more objective and diversity-friendly approach to board recruitment. And then we'll then take a step back and I'll ask Randall and Viola what has been learned from the project overall about how we harness the power of diversity, what are some of the key behaviours needed from different actors in the boardroom to enable diversity to add value and how do we avoid any unintended consequences as we try to make boards more diverse. So to kick off, I mean overall, although there's not progress on, on every dimension, the data from your report clearly shows boards becoming more diverse, at least demographically. But what is it that we actually need these more diverse boards to do and what qualities do we need them to have? And the research asked board members what they felt the key skills of the future are. And, and Randall, perhaps you could tell us what were the top skills and capabilities that emerged and then we can pick a couple to discuss. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, there's a real interesting mix of classic the kind of things we've boards have always had to do and some new stuff. So adaptability and resilience was the first one, the need to be able to deal with all the change going on in the world. Strategic thinking, that's and again, classic. Things like stakeholder management have gone really up the queue now, embracing diversity and interpersonal skills. So some of the personal and psychological skills are becoming more and more important here as we develop as well. And then we get into some other kind of much more specific things like digital skills and financial literacy, et cetera, as well. So, well, let's start with the, I mean, there's a lot to get into there. Let's start with the top one, right? And maybe it's not surprising that after the year we've just had adaptability and resilience are, are things that boards are feeling they need to have. But do you think that's just a function of the times we've been in or, or is there something kind of more enduring there that's underlying that? Well, I think there is something more enduring. I think certainly, I'm not surprised to turn out number one, we were doing these interviews in the middle of the, you know, uh, of, of the pandemic. So of course, the boards were having to do some pretty massive changes and everything from the way they operate to how they're running their business. So, I, you know, I'm not surprised it's at number one, but I think it is deeper than that. If you think about, step back, it wasn't very long ago, we also had the great financial crash and every board is now looking at things like climate change 
right? So what they're saying is this isn't just the odd one-off event. This now seems to be the air is more turbulent than it's been historically. And so we've just got to have that built in now. And I guess that, you know, strategy is not a, not a surprising um, one to turn up in the, in the top five. We'd hope boards have a handle on strategy. But beyond that, as you mentioned, it's quite an interesting mix of sort of traditional and new, harder and soft skills. And um, what did you make of all of that? And what does it say about the directors of the future? Yeah, I think it says that historically we focused on the kind of technical skills and strategy and so on, and that that's still a necessary, but it's not sufficient going forward in the future in order to be able to manage all that change and to be more effective in the boardroom people need all those interpersonal skills and so i think that what directors are telling us is the job is getting bigger and bigger more complicated and more interesting i mean on that vider i'd like i'd like to come to you because i mean i found it fascinating that given that this was a study about diversity managing diversity is itself viewed as a key required attribute. What did you make of that? And what did you hear about that when you spoke to directors? Yeah, well, I'll answer that. But I just want to quickly build on one of the things that Randall has just said, Sure. if I may. I mean, one of the things I was quite impressed with in terms of the, the chairs I spoke with was their articulateness and ability to talk about these softer issues. I think it's fair to say, at least my experience, historically, you would get a lot of answers around soft skills relating to, oh, we want people to be more curious or we want people to have high EQ. And when you would push them on that, it was very difficult for them to articulate actually what were the observable behaviors that they were looking for. And that, as I said, that was my biggest surprise and delight. The, the chairs I spoke with were really able to say so we're looking for curiosity. And here's what that would look like in the boardroom. Here's how that would show up. And here's how that would play out in terms of the interaction uh, between different board members. So there does seem to be this increased sophistication in chairs and boards to actually talk about these softer issues. And do you think that increased sophistication is arising just because the whole issue of board culture and board dynamics has, has become much more prominent in recent years? Or, or is it a generational thing? What, what, what do you think is behind that? I think it is because it's becoming more prominent. Mm. But this may sound an odd response, but I think the press coverage of governance over the past 10 to 15 years has gotten a bit more sophisticated in itself, which I think has helped boards. I mean, if you look at how things around Carillion have been reported, they're not giving sweeping statements <laughs> about the behaviors. They're being very specific in terms of what they're reporting on was happening or not happening in terms of the behaviors, the interactions, even the competencies of those on the board. So I think the press combined with boards realizing that they need to get more sophisticated in not only thinking about, but managing behaviors. I think, you know, those things have, have come together to bring us where we are today with boards mm. being much more articulate around these things. That, that's really interesting. And I mean, and, and just staying with you, Viola, I mean, you're just building on that. I mean, another issue that's really kind of exploded onto the boardroom agenda is of course, you know, ESG over the last few years. And so, I, I guess it's not surprising that stakeholder management rank pretty high as well in the top five kind of capabilities needed in the future. Did you see in your study 
evidence of boards really wanting to up their game in terms of their stakeholder engagement capabilities? Yeah, absolutely. And Tom, even to the level of not talking about it as stakeholder management, but stakeholder engagement, which I think are two very distinct things. And and again, I have to say, one of the things that has really brought this to the forefront is what we saw happen in early June 2021 with ExxonMobil and engine number one, which was an activist investment company, getting three of their candidates onto the ExxonMobil board because they felt that they had the skills and experience to more proactively address the ESG issues that ExxonMobil were facing. And the thing for me that made that even more interesting was they had the support of some of ExxonMobil's biggest institutional investors. So that was BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. I think, Vida, I can guess what you meant by the distinction between stakeholder management and stakeholder engagement, but but, but perhaps just sort of um, a couple of sentences on that. So for me, stakeholder engagement really involves thinking about how can we get in dialogue with our stakeholders? How can we co-create and discuss the wider strategic issues that we're facing and the outcomes that we're looking to achieve? So it's really including them in the conversation in some ways, as opposed to management, which I often think about as, well, we need to manage these people. (laughs) We need to give certain messages. We need to do this at the AGM or keep them at a distance around this or that. So I think it's, it's a whole different mindset around the relationship that you want to create with your stakeholder. Fascinating. Yeah. I'd I'd like now to come on to what you found out about nominations committees uh, and some of the practical issues around that. And I mean, I know I hear a lot of dissatisfaction from boards about the slates of candidates that they get presented with by headhunters. And actually, when I was a remuneration consultant, I always felt that headhunters were about the only other kind of board advisors that got as much flack as, as we did. You know, there's this sort of idea that the same names come round again and again, and there's a perceived lack of imagination. So I was interested to see that by some margin, getting the right search firm and the right mandate came top of the list of things that nomcoms need to get right. So, Randall, coming to you on this, what are some of the key points that came out about what that means in practice in terms of managing the relationship with the search firm? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, In fact, I think your characterization of what boards were saying about search firms is extremely polite compared to what the conversations that we had with directors were actually about. I was taken aback by a number of those conversations, really shocked, and it was consistent. So there's clearly an issue in how boards are working with or not working with search firms. And I think the days of pick a search firm, it's the search firm we work with over and over and over, boards are very quickly abandoning that. You know, if a search firm isn't giving us what we need, be specific, be clear. And if you're not getting what you need, you need to not be scared of walking away and trying another one. And increasingly talking about going to some of the smaller firms, particularly if you're talking about things like ethnic diversity, where 
the books of a lot of the big search firms have the same small number of names right that are in that network and what they don't always have is the network of actual talent in that community and so you need to be perfectly comfortable just going to a, a smaller firm that may be able to help you so what directors were talking about is also about you know, being clear and specific but also being skills based because if you go by position by definition you're not going to get any ethnic diversity because if you look at who's running big firms out there or listed firms out there, there is very little ethnic diversity. So if you want it on your board, you need to list by skills and then let the people who are applying make the case for why they have those skills that maybe they acquired in a less traditional way mm. than having had that big position, which was a kind of, I think, a, a kind of emerging view here, which is part of managing a pipeline of talent using the skills assessment and actually spending time and not just uh, one or two people on a nominations committee, but nominations committee leading the whole board in a conversation. So, I mean, you're painting a picture here really that maybe boards were a little bit, you know, just too ready to go along to a search firm and say, oh, we've lost a member of our audit committee, we need a member to replace them rather than kind of going back to square one and being really kind of clear about what they need before engaging the search firm. Is, is that the sort of change that we're seeing? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, it was kind of like an outsourcing, like we're just going to outsource this search. And what they're realizing is they can't outsource this search. They have to be involved themselves. Yeah. Violet, you wanted to... Uh, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. And again, I was encouraged with the chairs that I spoke to who said we're really proactively engaged in managing our search firm around this. And there are times that we say, this is an interesting list, but try again. And you can see some of the comments in the report, <laughs> non-attributed, that chairs were sharing with us about how they're really pushing their search firms to think wider. And I would also say more creatively. And that creative aspect links to some of the things that we were saying in the recommendations and linking to what Randall has said, the board itself actually going out and taking responsibility for thinking about the pipeline. Yeah, I'd, li I'd like to come on to that, actually, Vida. I'm glad you mentioned pipeline because I, I found it really interesting that this came up as one of the themes because we're really now used to thinking about management of pipeline within an organization. Everybody knows what that means, but probably people aren't so familiar with it in the context of boards managing a pipeline. So can you just say a little bit about what that actually means in practice? Yeah, I mean, for me, and again, one of the things that was emerging from my conversations is chairs really being strategic in terms of thinking about the search effort. So they said, you know, if we want to replace somebody in three months, we should really start thinking about this two years out, three years out, maybe, seeing what's out in the market. And there may be candidates who we find who we think this person is excellent, but they're not board ready. And by looking that far ahead, you can then make a decision of, okay, do we want to engage this person in some way to help support them getting board ready. So when we come to make the appointment, we've created a relationship with them. We've helped in terms of their development and they're ready to join the board as a fully contributing and functioning 
board member. And the other thing that came to mind for me, Tom, as I as I listen to chairs talk about this and reading the FRC guidance is the FRC are very clear in terms of saying it is the chair's responsibility to devise a development plan for exec and non-executive directors and make sure that's seen through. But one of the questions we put at the end of the report that we want boards to think about is, are they actually doing that? (laughs) Are chairs actually doing that? What is your development plan for your non-execs? And we're talking about beyond content knowledge, beyond knowledge of the strategy or the operational model or the business model. It's like, how are we helping these individuals build their soft skills so they can contribute even more powerfully and decisively to the boardroom conversation. And what is, I mean, that soft skills development, I mean, what's your sense of the prevalence of that at the moment? I mean, is that something that's frankly pretty rare or are we now seeing a growing number of organisations really grappling with that issue? Well, I have some thoughts on that. Randall, do you want to have a have a go? Because I know you're doing a great deal around executive assessment these days. Yeah, I mean, I would have said it's really coming into the radar screen. If you look at, we build on Viola's earlier comments about chairs being much better and a much greater awareness of the specific skills needed. You know, if we go back a decade and say, well, generally we need people who can get on with each other. Like, but what does that mean? Give us specifics. And now they're able to drill down and say, there's some very specific behaviors I want to see in this boardroom. Now that they're at that level, they're now able to say, actually, I know how to build some of those skills. And I want I want to make sure that people on my board have those skills. So I think it's starting. It's still not commonplace, but it's headed in the right direction. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And for me, it's important for chairs or boards to think about executive assessment as another data set that they can use as part of the process. I mean, my sense is a lot of boards or chairs stray away from that because they sort of feel that it's like, well, we're judging this person. We're looking for a specific profile. And both Randall and I try and move people away from that notion and say, actually, it's just another data set that you're creating around a person that's behaviorally oriented. You can understand their preferences, their values, their potential derailers in a way that you can more proactively work with them around the development of some of those aspects. So, so Viola, while, you, while you've got the mic, this all seems to talk to this sort of much more structured dare I say it, sort of professional approach to board development. And the fourth theme that really came through from the report around nominations committee was the use of kind of data in the management of the nomination committee process. Is that just as simple as kind of really keeping track of what you're doing or and where you're going? Or was there anything particularly distinctive that came out of that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's taking a more holistic approach to the data that you might So it's not only personal data, but it's also looking at group data, group dynamics. Mm -hmm. It's looking at what I would describe as process data. So that's about what you're doing as opposed to how you're doing it. So again, I was encouraged 
with the chairs I spoke to in them taking this more holistic, quote unquote, big data approach to thinking about board effectiveness and board performance. And again, I was delightfully surprised that some of the chairs that I spoke with really understood the difference between board evaluation and board development, which is something Randall and I talk about a great deal to, to chairs and boards. Randall, do you just want to say a couple of sentences on that distinction? Sure. Everybody knows board assessment should be done and that knowing where you are at any given moment is helpful and important. But the idea of board development is really how do we get better at working together and what do we do that helps us to work better over time? And it's much more kind of comprehensive understanding of what makes for good governance, right? It's not just a collection of really good individual directors. It's about the way we work together. So I think at its heart, that's where it comes from. And uh, just staying with you, Randall, I mean, you had the, you know, the privilege of talking to, a, you know, a large number of boards in, in some detail about, about these issues, which is obviously a rare opportunity. And were there any particularly interesting innovations you came across that, that, that perhaps aren't widespread now about how nomination committees operate, but that you think could potentially become best practices of the future? Yeah, there were a couple that I thought they were interrelated, but really challenging and interesting for boards to consider. One builds on this idea that Viley was just talking about, and that is more data. So when you do have a position for your board and you say, oh, we end up with this particular candidate, go back and say, and just look at who's applying, who's even in the, in the set, and ask yourself if no one of any demographic diversity is applying for your position. What is it about your firm? Why would people not even consider it as an appropriate place or a place they want to be? And a couple of boards came back and said, you know, so they've done this and realized they needed to make a bunch of changes before they even really get on the journey. So it really helped them understand how their company is being perceived out there in the world. The related one had to do with, is a nominations committee, or should it also be, what is its role in culture? And boards are very much picking up the mantle these days of taking a leading role in developing the culture of the firm so that the strategy and the culture of the firm actually work together, right? They're not independent conversations. The culture needs to support the strategy of this business. And oftentimes it's, you know, you build the culture over time on the board by bringing the right people in. So that nominations committee needs to lead the conversation about the culture that we're creating. Yeah, so Viola, uh, any sort of innovative practices that you identified that you'd want to um, pick up on? Yeah, there was one that really, again, uh, encouraged me and struck me of, as, well, yeah, that, that makes absolute sense. And it builds on what Randall was talking about in terms of recruitment being a board-wide activity. So one of the things that really struck me in the conversations I had were chairs and boards who were proactively making the time to go out and engage with, for example, professional associations that cater to certain ethnic minority communities. That meant anything from showing up at their events as participants, offering to speak at their events, 
and they said that that had created a rich conduit of candidates who probably would have not typically come across their radars, who could be good future candidates for the boards that they lead. It's fascinating. And um, I mean, I think there's some great insights that, that you've both provided here so far on um, you know, really what these skills are that, that the boards are looking for for the future and then how can the nominations committee support the process of getting those skills in. And um, so, so, Randall, you mentioned in the report that there was some sort of provisional indications that there might be a trade off between various aspects of diversity, and in particular, gender diversity versus socioeconomic status. Do you want to just expand a little bit more on that and and what we should learn from that? Sure. And I think it was a question in the report about whether in an effort, and and boards have made tremendous effort to diversify uh, and have more women on boards. And I applaud that. And the outcomes are impressive and positive. But sometimes in an effort to run after one thing, we don't keep track of something else. And that's my concern because what we were seeing is boards that had a lot more women had less socioeconomic diversity. It tends to be more uniformly high SES within that board. And so for me, that's a worry, right? And you know that begs the question of whether anytime we look just at one rather than balance across is a concern. Yeah, Viola, anything you wanted to add on that? I think it's very important for chairs and boards to keep in mind that there are different types of diversity, and that means that there are different strategies that you need to think about and deploy to deal with those different aspects of diversity. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's a good reminder as well, isn't it, that, you know, demographic diversity is not always directly correlated with the sort of cognitive or background diversity that boards are looking for. So there are just lots of dimensions nominations committees need to keep in mind, aren't there? Absolutely. But I I must say, and I I will not mention names, but for our listeners who are curious, I'm sure if they go on the internet, they'll know who I'm talking about. It was very interesting after the publication of our report, an announcement that one major management consultancy made, which was directly related to some of the recommendations that we made in our report around the issue of socioeconomic diversity. Interesting. I agree. And and it's also worth mentioning here to acknowledge the challenge. If you've got a board of 10 people, right, which is pretty common, average size, balancing all these different types of diversity against a set of skills you need, both technical as well as interpersonal, is quite a challenge for boards, right? And I don't want to not at least acknowledge that that is the case. doesn't absolve them from responsibility, but I think everybody needs to be clear about the real challenge. That challenge is a significant one. Thanks for that. And I mean, I think both of you just demonstrated that this report provides some great insights, both in terms of what skills are going to be needed of boards of the future, but actually what are the really practical ways in which nomination committees can work better to get those skills onto the board. Uh, And I'd now like to come on to the question of, well, how do we get it all to work once we've done that? And, and what are the, some of the unintended consequences that we maybe need to try to manage? And um, yeah, what was striking about the report was that when you asked board members about diversity, 
they seem to think about it as being in terms of neurological, personality, function, skills, experience, background, and so on and so forth, as being the important dimensions more than demographic diversity per se. I mean, Violet, perhaps I'll start with you on this. I mean, we've got an environment where investors, regulators, society are pushing balls to be more demographically diverse. So, for example, we've got the FCA consulting on having kind of soft quotas on, on female and ethnic minority representation. And, you know, ironically, it's perhaps a slightly kind of one-size-fits-all approach to diversity that's being taken here. But did you see evidence in your work about situations where the objectives of increasing demographic diversity risk being in conflict with increasing the dimensions of diversity that boards say are important? And how, how could boards think about dealing with that? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I found or feel that there's a conflict around that. My experience is that boards are probably a bit more sophisticated about understanding national diversity differences and being able to create strategies to talk about that and manage that in the boardroom. And I think a lot of that has been helped by the work that Gerv Harstetter has done around national diversity and offering up both to academics and in the practitioner community constructs that can help you understand what is valued in different cultures. But I was smiling as you were posing your question, and I know Randall was as well, because one of the things we talked about as we were creating the research strategy and protocol was, so how are we defining diversity? (laughs) I think you know, the word is used a lot, but when you dig into it, often you find people have many different definitions of what that means. So we made the decision to not give a definition and ask all those that we spoke to, so what is your definition of diversity? And we knew that there was going to be a lot of heavy lifting in terms of coding that data, but I think it was well worth it. Randall, you you probably have some further thoughts you could you could give on that. Yeah, I think so. There's oftentimes those who want to take swipe at boards will say they're not interested in diversity. And you know, in talking to directors, that is just categorically untrue. They are very aware of diversity and the role of diversity in the development of good decision making. And it really narrows the specific conversation down to what types of diversity are really perceived as helpful versus kind of coincidental. And I think our responsibility, and I think this is where the why different types of diversity make sense for boards to go after. And that's the conversation we should be having rather than at this slightly misdirected level of suggesting that directors don't care about it. They definitely do. And I guess for me, that was the big aha coming out of this. We can have a more fine-grained conversation because we really understand the different types of diversity and the priorities of directors versus perhaps others. Yeah. And understanding that diversity isn't something that just happens. (laughs) It's like any dynamic in a team, in a group, or a board. You, You have to manage it. You have to facilitate it. And Randall speaks a lot and very eloquently about that in the context of what research shows. 
Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, that's a great segue because I'm about to ask Randall to speak eloquently about that very topic, actually, because I think it's well recognised that, you know, you can't get benefits from diversity just by creating a diverse group, right? And, and it's not a numbers game. And, and actually, in your report, you indicate that as sports become more diverse, inclusion becomes ever more important. And some of your interview snippets indicate that this isn't always entirely straightforward and some boards feel they're in the early stages of this journey. So, Randall, what have you taken away from this? And, and of course, your, you know, your broader understanding of, of the research in this area is, is the really key things that boards need to focus on to get the benefits of diversity and are there different roles for the chair, the executive? I mean, how would you paint a picture of this um, for us in terms of the, the key points? Yeah, you've highlighted the key issue here already, which is the distinction between diversity and diversity and inclusion. Diversity on its own isn't going to get you much. Diversity and inclusion is where real things start to happen, exciting things start to happen, and that gives you the potential for those great things to happen. You know, in terms of the specific behaviors around inclusion, there were a couple of things that came out in the report that were, I think, interesting. One is the importance of culture and everybody's role. Everybody in that boardroom has a role to play in a culture that really allows people to speak and takes it on board. Not that you do everything every individual wants, but that you really do have those kind of conversations. Number two, things like making sure you define problems before you get into solutions. That's a general finding. Groups always want to go directly to solution. And you need to back people up and say, what is really the problem? Because oftentimes the disagreement that comes from diversity is not because we really see things in a fundamentally different way. We're actually solving somewhat different problems. And as a result, the most predictive item in our entire research, well, actually there are two. One, the board wants to do the right thing for the right reason. They're genuinely motivated to do the right thing. And number two, the chair is considered a really good listener by the rest of the board, right? Not by the chair themselves, but by everybody else. So it's that importance of the person leading this conversation needs to be able to take in lots of different points of view. And then we all have a collective responsibility to do the right thing and make the right decision. That's fascinating. And so, Viler, have you got, got anything that you'd want to add to that? Well, I have one thing, but I was keen to have Randall just talk a little bit about the importance of ensuring that interpersonal conflict doesn't turn into the notion of this is just a bad person or this is an ineffective person and they're not listening. Randall? Yeah, of course. You know, that comes from my research more generally about the notion that task disagreement about what to do and how to do it, which is perfectly what you're looking for in diversity, different points of view, can easily turn into relationship conflict, negative affect, I hate you. And the way there are a couple of management strategies for that. One management strategy is, of course, to build trust and build a trusting set of relationships within there, why things like that are important. The challenge in that is it's very difficult to build trust where it doesn't exist. That takes time. And ultimately, of course, that's where the very best boards get to. But the other strategy for it is to make decisions by what I call qualified consensus. Not that everybody says, yes, we should do this, 
but nobody says this is terrible. And that distinction is really important because that first one, everybody says yes, is actually really almost impossible to achieve oftentimes. But if somebody on that board says this idea will be the ruination of this organization, you better stop and really question that. Why are they so passionately talking about that in that way? If, on the other hand, they say, no, eh, judgment call, I might have done this, but that isn't terrible, that's okay. And that the best boards don't, I mean, we all, they all have official rules about voting, etc. But over and over, the most effective chairs also kept saying, other than formalities, we don't vote, we talk it out until everybody says they can live with what's going on, you know, what the decision is. And that's the other way to really resolve this problem of making sure that disagreements and debates, you know, real debates don't turn into negative affect, I hate you kind of conflict. What I often suggest as a management strategy is if you're having a discussion in the boardroom and you hear something that you violently disagree with, take the time to ask three questions before making a statement. Because often we find that interpersonal conflict comes from people making assumptions about what's being said or what's being implied, as opposed to just taking the time to say, ooh, I've heard this and it's leaving me feeling a bit uncomfortable. Can you tell me more about what you were thinking in regard to this aspect? How have you come to this conclusion? What types of things have informed your thinking? on this and truly asking open questions. Who, what, how, when, avoiding why uh, personally. I like people to avoid why because I think you can get the same quality of answer by asking some of those other open questions and avoiding why because often why can sound as if you're trying to grill somebody. So again, another strategy I encourage boards to experiment with. So one of the things that's really struck me from this little segment of the conversation is that there's quite a lot of work to do here, right? I mean, it's not just a question of getting diverse boards. It's, it's what you do with them. And I mean, this is perhaps why this, these kind of long-running debates about whether diversity improves performance it doesn't always show up in the data in the way we might expect. And one of the other things that's come through on this is that in that work, the role of the chair seems to be particularly critical. And I mean, Randall, do you think that on balance chairs recognize the pivotal nature of their role in making all of this work? I think chairs are aware at the level of, say, strategy, that what they do is really important. I think it's quite mixed on if they realize or understand their role in creating the boardroom dynamics that will lead to better discussion and ultimately better decisions. Some I spoke to totally get it and they really focus on it. And others were just completely, almost blissfully unaware that every decision they make about who they call on, how they respond to that, how they conduct the discussion is so critical to the quality of the outcomes. That's fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and it's why I use the definition of a chair as, a, as an orchestrator or a facilitator someone who has the skills, mindsets, ability to really orchestrate and curate the conversation and contributions. 
So actually, there's a there's a really critical role here, isn't there, for making sure that senior independent directors understand the importance of these characteristics, given that they're normally the individual who's going to lead the search for the next chair. So that's maybe another thing that we could kind of build into the nominations um, committee process. Yeah, spot on, Tom. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say 110% agree with you. It's like one of the biggest secrets to success that just needs to be better understood. Mm. Uh, so, Randall, Violet, that's uh, all we've got time for. But thanks for a, a great and stimulating conversation. I think we've got some real concrete ideas for boards about you know, how to think about the behaviours and characteristics of directors of the future, how to get the nomination committee in practical terms to get access to those directors, also from a more diverse population than perhaps we've been drawing on in the past. But then finally, what some of the kind of challenges and key points to focus are for boards wanting to make all of this work with a, I would say, particular emphasis on the absolutely critical role of the chair in all of that. Uh, and I'd like to remind listeners to look out for the first podcast of this pair, which is called Shaping Boards for the Future. And you can find that either at the video and podcast section of the Financial Reporting Council website or by checking out the Leadership Institute's website, which I'd strongly encourage you to do anyway, which you can find at london.edu under Faculty and Research and then looking under Research Centres and Institutes. So thank you for listening. Thank you.